Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, good evening. I hope you're all feeling well tonight. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 24. We are going to look at chapter 24 and 25 tonight, which providentially turns out to be just a good place for us to pause for the next few weeks as we get through the holidays and then reconvene in January. And actually, the place where we will begin in January, in chapter 26, is a good place to start the year 2021, because it's actually a song about trusting in God's provision and God's protection. So that's a good place to begin a year. And actually, chapter 24 and 25 is a good place to close 2020. I have mentioned to you several times now as we have looked at the various prophets of the Old Testament, but especially Isaiah, I have mentioned to you how Isaiah would see visions of the future, and part of that prophecy would take place in his immediate future. And then other elements of that prophecy would take place Sometimes decades later, sometimes centuries later, sometimes thousands of years later, he would jump right to the end of days and use the phrase, in that day. Well, tonight we're going to see that yet again, because what we've seen so far, the last couple of chapters, as God is judging the Gentile nations, Last week we saw Tyre and Sidon, and before that he was talking to Babylon, and he has judged Assyria, and he's talked about Edom and Arabia, and so he's been judging the Gentile nations, predominantly those nations that are right around Israel, that have a direct influence on Israel. But starting in chapter 24, Isaiah starts predicting God's judgment on the whole earth. And then right on the heels of that, after he has declared God's judgment on the whole earth, he goes back to that theme that we have seen time and time again in Isaiah, the theme of restoration for Israel. And then chapter 25 is a song of great praise for God's favor, particularly to Israel. Now, the reason it's necessary to read these chapters sequentially is to know that they are all part of the same prophecy that begins with God judging the nations around Israel. And many of those judgments, many of those prophecies, we can actually find in human history, in time. We find them quite literally occurring on the planet in our history. And then suddenly Isaiah leaps to Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste and devastates it and distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants, and that hasn't happened yet. And yet it is really, really familiar language. It's the language of a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. It's the language of the wrath of God, the time of the day of the Lord, the time of the great tribulation, And so then it's no surprise that right behind all this prophecy of tribulation and judgment at God's hand, the very next thing we see are promises of Israel's restoration and glorious future. In other words, it would be really, really easy to derive premillennialism from these two chapters because the sequence of events that Isaiah lays out is exactly like the sequence of events that all the other prophets lay out, that the New Testament authors lay out. It doesn't change. It's always telling the same story, which is there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, during which God pours out his wrath, the day of the Lord, 
he judges the nations of the earth collectively the whole earth and then there is a time of restoration particularly for Israel that results in all the nations of the earth flowing to Israel and the blessings of God flowing down through Israel to the nations as the Messiah sits on David's throne in Jerusalem that is the consistent prophetic story all the way through the Bible we saw it on Sunday morning as we were talking about the kingdom we're going to see it tonight as we're talking about God's judgment you always see the exact same pattern and that pattern fits premillennialism to a T it doesn't fit amillennialism it doesn't fit postmillennialism it only fits premillennialism if you just simply let it say what it says so again I am not starting with the assumption of a particular method through which I'm going to read the Bible I'm not starting with a theological axe to grind I am not starting with well this is my system this is my hermeneutic and therefore I read the text this way instead what you're going to see is simply by reading the text it leads you inexorably to the same thing that all the prophets have taught and that is premillennialism you just can't escape it so with those words of introduction I think we can read through these two chapters relatively quickly behold the Lord lays the earth to waste he devastates it he distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants and the people will be like the priest and the servant will be like his master and the maid will be like her mistress the buyer like the seller the lender like the borrower the creditor like the debtor in other words everybody's falling under God's judgment it doesn't matter if you're high and mighty it doesn't matter if you're a priest it doesn't matter if you're a master over slaves or whether you're the slave himself or whether you're the maid or whether you're the mistress everybody is going to fall under the judgment of God at this point in time now again I have to really stress this so you don't lose the context remembering that there are no chapter divisions when Isaiah was writing he didn't suddenly put a big 24 there and say now I'm starting a new chapter now I'm starting a whole new idea now I'm starting a whole new concept this is all part and parcel of Isaiah's predictions of the judgment of God on the various Gentile nations so he starts with the enemies of Israel and the enemies of Judah and then he branches out from there to all the Gentile nations and it's all part and parcel of the same prophecy the same way that we can look back historically and say okay those early prophecies about God destroying Tyre or the way that God predicts the fall of Babylon or the way he's going to destroy Assyria those things actually happened in history therefore the end of this prophecy is equally secure based on the fact that the early part of the prophecy actually happened happened literally happened genuinely happened historically we can go and find it in time and history therefore I keep contending the whole rest of this prophecy is also secure because it's based on the same God being prophesied by the same prophet as part of the same prophecy you get my point mm-hmm. am I beating a dead horse here okay. verse 3 the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word the earth mourns and withers the world fades and withers the exalted of the people of the earth fade away the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for they transgressed laws violated statutes broke the everlasting covenant and therefore a curse devours the earth do me a favor Tom and look up 2nd Peter 3:10, and you're going to see now where Peter gets this particular bit of information that he includes in his writing he pulls it right from Isaiah therefore the inhabitants of the earth 
are burned and there are very few people left. So what does 2 Peter 3.10 say? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Exactly like Isaiah just said, in the time when God is judging the inhabitants of the earth for the way that they have transgressed his laws, violated his statutes, broke the everlasting covenant, he's going to burn up the earth. And Isaiah says, therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. And then he describes how bad it's going to be for people in those days. And so he's going to describe several good things, several things that indicate a life of plenty and leisure and say that they're all withering away. They're all being destroyed. For instance, the new wine cries or mourns and the vine decays and all the merry hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourines ceases. The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. And the city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. The best way to understand that is not as a reference to a particular city that Isaiah is referring to as the city of chaos. Instead, that is a general reference to the cities of this planet that have built up their high walls that think they're protected by that, and yet they're brought down into chaos. Because in a moment, he's going to use that phrase again, and it becomes obvious that he's talking about the cities of the earth, the cities of men, the cities that men trust in are all cities of chaos and all broken down, and every house is shut up so that no one can enter. In other words, people run into their house, lock the doors, close the windows, try to avoid the danger outside, and they don't let anybody in. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. In other words, concerning the destruction of everything that is joyous, everything that's happy. All joy turns to gloom, and the joy, the gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. So the cities of the earth, all the cities of the earth, are completely destroyed, and their gates are no help to them, and their walls are no help to them, because desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered down and taken to ruin, for thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the Gentiles, among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning when the grape harvest is over. In other words, at the end of a grape harvest, all you've got left is bare branches. There are no more grapes. Everything that's good, everything that's edible is already gone. Once you've shaken an olive tree, it means that all the ripe olives have fallen off. You've shaken the tree to try to get the last of the fruit out. In other words, these are pictures of desperation, where there's just nothing left to have. Verse 14 suddenly makes this change. And the perspective here seems to be the perspective of the people of God as they are watching God pour out his judgment. And this is really vital to understand, is that the people of God worship and praise God regardless of what God is doing. If he's pouring out blessings, if he's pouring out ease and comfort, the people of God worship him and celebrate him. If he's pouring out his judgment, if he's bringing about his wrath based in his righteousness, the people of God celebrate him and worship him because he's doing all the things that only God can do. So therefore, the whole earth has this shout of the glory of God from the east to the west to the north to the south. Everywhere the people of God are celebrating God despite the fact that he's brought this level of pain and tribulation to the planet. Verse 14, they raise their voices 
they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the east. Okay, so a moment ago he mentioned that they're crying out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Now they're glorifying the Lord in the east. The name of the Lord, the God of Israel. They worship him in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. The people of God celebrate and worship God regardless of what it is God does. Because even in this judgment, God is keeping his word. He's demonstrating his faithfulness. He told people from the very beginning. There were only two people on the planet when he said, obey my word or die. He told Israel in the law, do my law or I'll punish you and judge you. And so here, the people of God are celebrating. This is a good thing that God is doing. He's being faithful to his own word and his own promises. And then Isaiah speaks very personally first person and says, but I say, <coughs> woe is me, woe is me, alas for me. This is very much like we saw earlier when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. And he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah sees the judgment of God coming on the earth, the utter destruction of the earth, the burning of the people of the earth, and then he hears after that these songs of praise, these songs of worship, these songs of glorifying God, by contrast, he sees himself still living in this world of treachery. So he says, woe is me. Woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Which is very much like, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Mm -hmm. Treachery means people who lie, people who kill, people who plot evil. And he says, that's the kind of people I live among, treacherous people who do treacherous things. And woe is me for living among those kind of people. The end result of those people is verse 17, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. In other words, if God's out to get you, he's going to get you. And it doesn't matter where you run or where you hide or if you manage to climb out of the pit, you're still going to fall into the snare. You're still going to fall into the judgment of God. There is no escaping a God who is absolutely everywhere. And once the windows from heaven are opened, that's such an interesting phrase because Malachi includes that phraseology when saying, I will open the windows of heaven. And that language is the language of blessing. Here is the language of the windows of heaven being opened to bring about the judgment of God that you cannot escape. So blessing comes from heaven, but judgment comes from heaven. The windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake and the earth is broken asunder, broken in two, broken into pieces and the earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. In other words, the planet is so full of earthquakes that the earth is now comparable to a drunken man reeling to and fro as he walks down the street, trying to walk a straight line and incapable of doing it. He says, that's what the earth's going to be like. It's going to be so unstable as it shakes. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. In other words, a shack, not a house, not a firm building. A shack, when the wind blows, it starts shaking, it starts tottering. 
and it totters like a shack. For its transgression, the transgression of the earth, is heavy upon it, and it will fall, never to rise again. How can that be, never to rise again? God will make a new heaven and a new earth after he has destroyed the earth by fire. So this old earth, this sinful earth, this earth of treachery, this earth of walled cities and wars against each other, that planet is going to be done away with as God establishes the kingdom wherein righteousness dwells so that the righteousness and the holiness of God covers the earth like the seas cover the earth. Verse 21, so it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth, and they will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon, and they will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. What is the ultimate punishment in the book of Revelation that we read about? The lake of fire, and God places the devil and his angels there, and then all the humans who took the mark of the beast, who didn't receive the love of God, they go into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's the same thing that Isaiah is describing here. <coughs> they will be gathered together, whether denizens of heaven who lost their first estate, or whether denizens of the earth who were in sin and rebellion against God, they will be gathered together like prisoners in a dungeon and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished, and the moon will be abashed, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The sun will be ashamed, the moon will be abased. What does that sound like? sounds like all those predictions of Joel that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost, that the sun and the moon are not going to give their light. And then the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens as Christ is coming back to establish his kingdom. What's the next thing that Isaiah sees after the many days of confining them in prison and the moon being abashed and the sun not giving its light and being ashamed? The very next thing that happens is for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is so very, very consistent. As we've been looking at the kingdom language on Sunday, we kept seeing the promise, the Davidic covenant, that Christ was going to rule. David's greater son was going to sit on David's throne and rule from Jerusalem and rule over the nations of the earth. Isaiah sees it. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. When's that going to happen? After the sun and the moon and the stars go dark. When's that going to happen? After the judgment of the earth, after God has poured out his wrath on the planet. That, to put a fine point on it, is premillennialism. You, you can't escape it. That's the sequence of events that you find in the premillennial understanding of the Bible. But again, I don't start with premillennialism and then read it into the Bible. I read the Bible, and it just forces you into premillennialism. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. You go to the book of Revelation, and you see that the four and twenty elders are constantly throwing their crowns at the feet of Christ and worshiping and praising him eternally. Isaiah says that. So Old Testament or New, you have the exact same testimony that starts in Isaiah's mind with God judging the nations surrounding Israel, surrounding Jerusalem. And he names them by name. It is Assyria. It is Egypt. It is Babylon. It is the Amorites. It is Arabia. It is Tyre and Sidon. He deals with all those very specifically. We can find those judgments in history. God actually did it. And then as part and parcel of the exact same vision, Isaiah then sees God pouring out that same kind of judgment on all the nations of the earth in a time of trouble Followed immediately by praise and worship to God. Because God is pouring out his favor on his people. From where? From Mount Zion in Jerusalem. 
where the Lord of hosts will reign, that's kingdom talk, yep. and he will sit as a king in Jerusalem and rule over the nations of the earth. O Lord, thou art my God. I will exult in thee. I will give thanks to thy name, for thou hast worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Isaiah <coughs> believes the same theology we do about an absolutely sovereign God. The God who says that all his ways are known to him from the beginning. God who doesn't predict the future, he declares the future. <coughs> because he is the all-omnipotent one who can make sure that what he has declared actually comes to pass. Isaiah says the exact same thing. He worships that God. He exalts that God. He lifts that God up. He gives thanks to the name, to the authority, to the splendor of God because you have worked these wonders, these miraculous things that no human being could possibly have actually worked. Only an omnipotent God could work them. Plans that were formed long ago and then executed in real time, Isaiah says, in perfect faithfulness. Okay, now Isaiah just said, God is perfectly faithful, not just kind of faithful, perfectly faithful to his word, and he said that on the back of prophecies we haven't seen yet come to pass. But in Isaiah's mind, they have to. And if you look at history of the first part of the prophecy, that all happened. So the second part of the prophecy is secure. It is secure by the plans of God who planned them long ago, and he planned them in perfect faithfulness. He will always be faithful to his word. May I take a moment and step aside from Isaiah's prophecy for a moment to say, God is completely faithful to everything he ever determined to do, and that ought to make you really, really happy. Because that same faithful God who has proven himself to be in complete control of human history is the exact same God who made promises to you that haven't come true yet. He has promised you that you're going to come see his glory. He's promised you that his son is going to come get you like his bride and take you to the home that he's been building for you. There's all these promises that we just long for. We can't wait for Christ to crack the sky and come get us and take us to his glory. Instantaneous change when this mortal puts on immortality, when this... Uh, Corruptible puts on incorruptibility. All these promises that haven't come true yet, but the first part of those prophecies has come true. Christ actually came to the planet. He actually died to pay our sin debt so that God our Savior could completely save and redeem us. So the beginning of that is already in place. The beginning of it has already happened in time and in history. Therefore, we can say confidently that the rest of it is going to happen quite literally in time and in history because it was declared by God a long time ago, and he declared it in perfect faithfulness. Do you think that God is going to let you down? No. There's just no way. Everybody sort of sat up a little taller as we got into that. A few of us kind of put our chests on a little bit. A great deal of confidence just filled the room, as there ought to be. For thou hast made a city into a heap. You have made a fortified city into a ruin. You have made a palace of strangers to be a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. That is all part and parcel of why Isaiah says that he's going to exult in God and give thanks to the name of God, because God has worked these wonders. He has poured out his judgment on planet Earth. And as I said, the people of God celebrate God, worship God, praise God for even the trouble that he brings onto the planet. Because we recognize that that is all part and parcel of the holy God demonstrating his holiness. And we're all for that. 
Therefore, a strong people will glorify thee. And cities of ruthless nations will end up revering you. God's going to change the governmental, political structure of the world. He's going to change the way the nations of the earth react, especially how they react to Jerusalem, because the blessings of God are going to flow from Jerusalem out to the nations. That's why the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and say, teach us about your God. And the strong people, the people who once were the high and the mighty, are going to glorify God. People who felt completely self-sufficient, people who said, I don't need God. It's exactly like Psalm 2 told us that we read this past Sunday. They're going to throw off his fetters, throw off his bonds, and say, I will not have this man to rule over me. And they are the very ones who are warned, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Those mighty men who felt no need of God are the very ones who are going to glorify God, and cities of ruthless nations are going to revere you. For thou hast been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm and a shade from the heat. Now, by contrast, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. In other words, it's just nonstop. It just pounds the wall, pounds the wall. It's like heat in a drought. It's bad enough that there's a drought. It's bad enough that there's no food. And then there's this intense heat on top of that. It's just discomfort on top of discomfort. And he says, that's what the breath of the ruthless is like. When they speak out, when they make their plans, their plans are to cheat you, to belittle you, to take everything from you, to cause you to sin, to make you feel helpless and hopeless. God is the defense for the helpless. He's the defense for the needy during their time of distress. But their time of distress is brought about by the ruthless. They're like heat in a drought. And thou dost subdue the uproar of aliens. Aliens there is anyone who is not Jewish, anyone who is not part of Israel. God is going to subdue them. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. If you've ever been outside in the the direct sunshine, I'm sorry, my ride is here. I'm going I'm to have to go. And if you've ever been outside in the intense heat, you know how refreshing it is when a cloud comes along and blocks that direct heat for a little while. Suddenly you get a little bit of reprieve, a little bit of comfort. Okay, Isaiah compared that to God coming along and silencing the ruthless. Thou hast subdued or thou dost subdue the uproar of aliens and like heat by the shadow of a cloud the song of the ruthless is silenced and the Lord of hosts again that name means the sovereign one who is in control of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth whenever you see that name which Isaiah uses repeatedly it means the one who is in charge of everyone the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all his people on this mountain. What mountain? Jerusalem, Zion. After he has poured out his punishment on the nations of the earth, he is then going to prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on that mountain. In other words, the blessings, as I keep saying, the blessings from God flow through Jerusalem and out to the nations. There's going to be a banquet of aged wine, not just the new wine that went bad. Now, aged wine, good wine, and choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. It's interesting that Isaiah mentions that twice. Apparently, that is really a sign 
of an excellent banquet. And so if God throws a, a good banquet, he's going to bring out the best of everything, the choice pieces of meat and the refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. What is the veil that is over all nations right now? According to Paul, the veil is the misunderstanding of everything that is God. People don't understand God. They don't understand his word. They don't understand his revelation of himself because their eyes are veiled. There is a veil over people so that they just don't get it, just can't get it. But in that day, from Jerusalem, from his mountain, I love the language of he's going to eat it up. He's going to swallow it up. He's going to uncover that veil that is over all the people who could not understand even the veil which is stretched out over the nations by the way if you're following this sequentially this would also be during the time that Satan is bound and cast into the abyss so that he can deceive the nations no longer it all fits together so very nicely and that veil is going to be done away with. Tom, if you would, look up 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Steve, if you would, <coughs> Revelation 7, 17. Micah, if you would, Revelation 21, 4. Because we see these promises in the New Testament, and I just want to show you that the promises that are quoted by Paul and that are quoted by John are actually promised all the way back here in Isaiah. They weren't making up anything new. They weren't making up some novelty that no one had ever heard of before. Instead, verse 8 says, He will swallow up death for all time. Okay, that's one promise. God is going to swallow up death. The same way that he's going to do away with the veil of misunderstanding that is over the nations, he is also going to swallow up death once and for all, for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Everybody who's there, who's part of that sumptuous banquet that he's making, by the way, that may or may not be the sumptuous banquet that we know as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But as we're all sitting at this wonderful banquet of God, as he is taking away the veil that would cause people not to understand things, he is also going to use his finger to wipe away tears from all the faces of all his people. And he is also going to swallow up death for all time. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. He is going to remove the reproach. The reproach means that he is angry at them because of the sinfulness and the depravity that was described in the last chapter. That the whole earth is full of treacherous people and woe is me and the earth is polluted and God is going to destroy the earth because of the pollution of the inhabitants of the earth. By direct contrast now, God is going to remove his anger that is the result of the reproach of his people from all the earth. Why? Because the Lord has spoken. Mm -hmm. If he says it, that's it. It has to happen because everything he says, he says in faithfulness to his own word. God cannot deny himself. Okay, so the promises we saw there in verse 8, let's start at 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and I believe there Paul is going to tell us that he's going to swallow up death for all time. This is good stuff here. <laughs> when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Then will come to pass the saying that God is going to swallow up death. What saying is he referring to? He's referring to Isaiah here. Paul didn't just make that up. And then he's going to wipe away every tear from every face. Steve, you've got Revelation 7, 17. 
For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where did John get that? Not only was that part of the vision he saw, but it was part of the vision that Isaiah saw. So whether you're talking about Old Testament or New Testament, you still have the consistent testimony that this is God's plan for his people, to bring them to a point of such joy, such comfort and peace, that there will be nothing more to cry about, because he's going to remove disease and death and hardship. And now Micah is going to read Revelation 21.4. By the way, chapter 21 comes after chapter 20, which is chapter 20 is the thousand-year verses and the, all those verses about the millennium themselves. After that millennium, this is what we hear. Verse 4 starts with and, so I better read verse 3. Sure. But it starts with and. <laughs> well, you know that whole section does. And, and, and. We've talked about that. Yeah. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Boy, isn't that just great? I'm sorry. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Hmm. Go ahead. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Hold on. Didn't we just see promises from God saying, And they will be my people, and I will be their God? We just read it this past Sunday. Here is the culmination of it. And they will be my people when I put my tabernacle in their midst and dwell among the people. And they will be my people. Go ahead. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Because the first things passed away. And therefore there's no more death, there's no more mourning, there's no more sickness, God wipes away every tear. John, again, testifying to the very same thing that Isaiah testified to. That feels like a pretty secure promise. How many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Once. Once. But he has said this now three separate places. We've seen that God is going to wipe away every tear. Tear, the sadness of his people is going to disappear, dissipate completely, because God himself is going to place his tabernacle among his people. God himself is going to dwell among his people. God is going to take away the veil that would keep them from misunderstanding. And then he's going to swallow up death. And so there is this ultimate victory coming over death, all of which is predicted in Isaiah and then said again in the New Testament. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. That word can be translated saved, it can be redeemed, it can be taken us from our sinful estate and judgment so that he has caused us to pass out from under his judgment. This is our God whom we have waited for. I love that phrase. In that day, when his tabernacle is in our midst, in that day when he is living among his people, we are going to say, this is my God who I've been waiting for. Do you feel that? That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're longing for. We're waiting for that day when our God is going to come and redeem us off this planet and redeem us from our sinfulness and take us to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And we're going to constantly brag on him, not on us. We're not going to brag on each other. We're not going to be saying, boy, you did a good job. Instead, we're going to say, this is my God who did all this. The reason I'm standing here today in his midst as one of his people is because this is the God who saved me. And it wasn't any of the idols of the earth. 
and it wasn't any of the politics of the earth, and it wasn't any of the religions of the earth. It was this God. This God saved us, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and then one day my faith became sight. One day my God revealed himself. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Notice the emphasis on waiting. The people of planet Earth, the people who belong to God, have been waiting. Just, just do it. Just bring about that kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on Earth. I know I've quoted that a lot lately. But that is the focus that Isaiah gives us here. That idea of just waiting and longing and hoping and then one day when it becomes reality, we're going to be saying, this is the Lord that I've been waiting for. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Yeah, I'm betting so. I'm betting you're not going to have to go to anybody in that day and say, hey, cheer up. Nobody's going to be asking anybody, what's wrong? You look a little downcast. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Do you see why I keep emphasizing that the blessings that the nations of the earth receive are blessings that flow through Jerusalem? The nations are going to come up to Jerusalem, and the blessings of God are going to come down to Jerusalem and then flow out to the Gentile nations from there. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Now remember, as Isaiah is writing this, the children of Israel are under a great deal of persecution from the surrounding nations. So once again, having begun this prophecy by explaining that God is going to judge all those nations, Isaiah then returns to that theme and says, and Moab will be trodden down in his place. In other words, even though you are under the hand of the Moabites right now, even though you're doing warfare with the Moabites, even though they're encroaching on your land constantly, that's not going to be forever. One day, God is going to be in the midst of his people, and these Moabites... They're going to be trodden down into the dirt till they don't matter anymore. So Isaiah is trying to encourage the people of Israel to continue to trust, have faith in their God, because their God has promised them this glorious future despite what the present looks like. And that's an important lesson for all of us as well that God has promised us these glorious future things regardless of what our present might look like. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down in his place. And then God gets really colorful with the language and says, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. If you wanted to... Um, cause a manure pile not to smell so bad. You would put straw in it and stomp the straw down into it to soak up some of the liquid that was in it in order to get rid of the smell. Have, have I described that adequately for the moment? He says that's what Moab's going to be like. The same way that Moab is going to be crushed down into their own land, it's going to be the same way as the way you put straw trodden down into the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it. In other words, Moab is going to stand in his land and he's going to spread out his hands like he's really something. The way that a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. When you swim like that, your hands are spread out. But the Lord, despite the pride of Moab, despite the fact that Moab at the moment is standing in his land with his hands outstretched like dig me, despite that, the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. And the unassailable fortifications of your walls, he will bring them down. He will lay them low. He will cast them to the ground, even to the dust. 
Now at chapter 26, we read, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Very specifically, land of Judah, Jerusalem, this is the song they are going to sing when they encounter their glorious future, which comes after the judgment of God on the whole earth. You're getting the, the time frame here? Mm -hmm. Which comes after the Savior coming back and setting up his kingdom. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind thou wilt keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in thee. Trust then in the Lord forever. That's Isaiah's whole point of this prophecy. Reassuring Israel, trust the Lord, trust Yahweh, trust your God. He has a glorious future in mind for you, despite the fact that you're going through troubles now. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. That's where I want to stop tonight. I would like to end the last Wednesday of 2020 on the absolute promise that we can trust in the Lord because the God, our Lord, Yahweh, is our everlasting rock. And that's why he can make everlasting promises and those promises have to come true because he speaks those words in faithfulness and that's why when Isaiah predicts these things he can say because the Lord spoke it and Isaiah's notion of the word of God is if God said it it's going to happen and we have that same God today, right now, sitting in Smyrna, Tennessee, at the end of the year 2020, we have the same promise that we can be faithful to that God, trust that God, that we can count on that God to care for us because he is our everlasting rock. And that rock is security, and that rock is immovability, and that rock is constancy, and that's the rock that's going to come back and crush all the nations of the earth and set up the everlasting kingdom. Hence, once again, at the risk of redundancy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We have an everlasting rock, and that's good news. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>